Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. It's when the church said, 
This is the event, not of nativity, because see, the Eastern Orthodox Church actually calls Christmas nativity. Christmas Day is nativity day. And so when this feast of Christmas, we have rightfully a Christmas season, Christmas season is not the time uh, around Halloween where we start hearing Christmas music or nature music.
Jesus says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. Notice he's sending them out. This is where he sends out the disciples and tells them when it go, when you go out, this is what it's supposed to look like. Right. And we always spend all kinds of time on this on this Lord, the harvest and the harvest. Uh, means that we need to worry about the harvest and the harvest and the harvest. Most of our evangelism is based in fear and anxiety. When you're taught to be afraid because the rapture is going to happen tomorrow, your evangelism is based out of anxiety, not out of peace, joy, and confidence. When did Jesus ever share the gospel in fear and anxiety? So, Jesus says, go your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whichever house you enter first, say peace and leave your house. And if anyone who's there shares in this peace, your peace will rest upon that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking. Whatever they provide. Now, this is uh, the part where we get that our kids need to finish the vegetables. Put, eat whatever's in front of them. Um, and he says, uh, um, for the laborer deserves his, his pay. Don't move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, if people welcome you, eat what's there. Cure the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Do you realize what's just happened? What he has told them is, when you're telling them the kingdom of God has come near to you, it's going to look like a meal. Eat and drink. Go into the house and eat. Go into the house and have a feast. doesn't say anything about church service. doesn't say anything about making sure you put on some Misty Edwards. It doesn't say anything about making sure that you read lots of scripture. It just says eat and drink. You want to know why? Because the Jewish people believed that meals were the most holy, sacred thing They believe the meal was the most sacred thing. It was vitally important to them. They believe that the meal was a holy thing. Why? Because God said in the beginning when he created the earth and the trees, he actually invested his creative ability in them so that they could produce something for us to consume, right? He didn't create trees and then say, now when it's time for the tree to give apples, I'll come back and tell apples to come from the tree. He put the thing that it needed in the tree so that it would get the apples. So when we're eating, we're actually eating of God. We're eating of his creative ability. I didn't say this. <laughs> what, two witches? I'll tell you the story. So the idea is that there's something really, really special about this. And I love that he makes it simple. He just says, hey, look, when you go into the house, if you go into the house and people don't want what you have, you don't have anything. And we've made this a big deal about if your peace comes upon them and they reject it, your peace comes back to you. Shake the dust off of your peace. Okay, we should just strike that from our language. You know those things that the church has used in such a negative way that we just shouldn't say anymore for a little while until maybe it gets back to what it's about? That's one of them. You know what it actually just means is? Come on, it's bothering you. Shake the dust off. Have you ever seen that skit where Peyton Manning is throwing the football on Saturday Night Live and he's hitting the kids in the head? And it's a terrible skit, but I've seen it. Uh, and so uh, what, he's, what he says at one point, he hits one of these little kids in the head because he's teaching them how to play football, and the kid falls down. He says, 
Oh, just shake the dirt off. You're fine. Why do you keep saying that? Shake the dust off. Don't worry about it. it don't be, how many times have we done that well? We go into the house. We share with them what we feel like God wants us to share about who God is and how he does it. And then they don't want it. And we get either, number one, we get argumentative and defensive because we're not content for us just to win that our God is right. We need every other idea to lose. I am not content for Christianity to win. I need Islam to lose. So we get argumentative or we get frustrated or we get offended. Jesus says, no, 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 don't be any of that stuff. Don't you know that the peace that you extend into that house is going to come back to you? So if you leave and you don't have peace, you didn't leave in the kingdom. Have you left offended and left in peace? Oops. Means you probably let go of peace at some point. So this is what the kingdom is about. So I'm going to say this. Uh, we're going to get to the scripture in a moment, but I like to tell you a story. So um, as all good heaven stories start, um, it, it deals with St. Peter, who is for some reason the gatekeeper of heaven. I don't know at what point that happened, but it's a piece here and we're going to go with it. So this uh, guy dies and is standing in front of the gates of heaven with St. Peter. And St. Peter's standing there, and St. Peter is um, uh, kind of greets him, and the guy's standing there, and there's this awkward moment. You know those awkward moments where you walk up, and you're not sure what to do, like which fork to use. Maybe in the middle one just seems kind of colder than the other one, and you just can't decide. I don't know what's happening here. So he walks up to the gates of the kingdom, and he says to St. Peter, how am I supposed to do this? How do I get in? Is there, do I need points? Do I have to tell you about how this works? And, and uh, Or do you have to tell me how this works? And Peter says, yeah, yeah, the, the points are good. And he says, okay, um, well, how many points do I need? And Peter says, um, well, a hundred is, is what you need. And the guy says, okay, no problem. Um, how do you want me to do this? He said, well, just tell me about your life, and we'll see if you have enough points. And he says, okay, well, first of all, I was absent for 30 years. And church, but we, we did everything we could, and we tried to do what was right. And Peter says, okay, well, I'll give you five points for that. 30 years of pastoring a church, five points, that's probably the best I have in my life. And he says, um, what else you got? And he says, well, I, I also, um, for 20 years, worked in a, in a soup kitchen. So I went down and helped the poor and helped the needy. And Peter says, oh, that is really good. Well, I'll give you 15 points for that. At this point, the guy's freaking out because he's thinking, I have 20 points, and I've given him my best. Like he was hoping to be at 85 at this point. So he says, well, um, I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I, I've got, I did this thing, and he says, yeah, I'll give you a couple points for that. At this point, this guy named Tom walks up. Um, the, the pastor that's standing there talking to Peter knows Tom. Um, he's from his family's town. Tom was a priester. Does anybody know what a priester is? A priester is somebody that goes to church on Christmas and Easter. So uh, this guy named Tom was a priester, and he was a good guy. Uh, he wasn't bad. He didn't kill anybody, but he was just a normal guy. And so um, he, Tom walks up at this point, and he looks back at Tom, and the pastor's thought immediately is like, Tom's in trouble. <laughs> Say that again. Uh, Tom is in trouble. And Tom just walks right through the gate. Doesn't stop, doesn't collect $200, just goes straight through the gate. And he looks at Peter, the pastor does, and he's so frustrated. He looks at Peter and says, what in the world? I know that guy. He's 
was even by most definitions a Christian. How did he get in? How did he have 100 points? And Peter said, oh, he didn't have 100 points. He just doesn't play that good. Jesus, um, in this incredible story, um, in Luke chapter 15, is at a party. And the Pharisees are there. And all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is really interesting because there's a backdrop to the story. The first thing that we have to understand is this is immediately following Luke 14. Luke 14, Jesus is at another feast. He's at another party, except in Luke 14, he's at the party of a religious person. And at the party of the religious person, um, Jesus is there, and the Pharisees keep watching Jesus to try to see what he's going to do. How's he going to act? What's he going to say? And Jesus does some of the most bizarre things you find him doing. The first thing he does is Jesus um, starts the social order of who's there isn't right because they need to start welcoming people who are poor and oppressed and sick and essentially the people who the religious people wouldn't want anything to do with. The next thing that uh, that Jesus does uh, that's, that's really interesting to me at this special party is Jesus heals somebody who's sick on the Sabbath. This breaks the rules, right? You're not allowed to heal anybody on the Sabbath. So Jesus does that. The next thing he does is he begins to talk to them and gives this parable about how their feast is supposed to be open and tells this story that you've probably heard about how there's a feast and they invite people and uh, the people that the guy invites don't show up. And so the, the Lord of the feast calls, go out and I want you to bring everybody in, every one of these people. So that's the thing he does. So Jesus leaves that party in Luke chapter 14, and he throws his own party. So Jesus throws a party. And at Jesus' party, notice who's invited. Tax collectors and sinners are at Jesus' party. The people who are out. See, the idea of this is because it's it, 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 the whole social order at that time was about feasting. In fact, feasting was deeply, deeply, deeply important to their social order. So feasting was how you would accept people. So you wouldn't eat with people whose actions or lifestyle you didn't condone. So the way you would condone people would be to throw a feast and invite them. And it would speak of you saying, no, they're, they're with me. They're okay. 
Jesus, as Jewish rabbis, very well understands this rule and understands that he's not supposed to do this. And the thing that's fantastic about this is not only does Jesus do this, he does this immediately after leaving a feast at the religious guy's house where the religious guy didn't invite anybody. Jesus says, I'll show you how to throw a party. And he invites the people that nobody else has at their feast. And the thing that's phenomenal about this is it's political theater. You have to understand that the backdrop of this, eating was a big deal. They would feast once a week. And when they feasted, it was very, there was a social order, there was a religious order, and there was a political order. And all three of those things were deeply connected. So imagine what would happen today. I have to be giving you some quite strong analogies. But imagine what would happen today if um, somebody who's a leader of the Republican Party um, decides to throw a party and his guest of honor is Bernie Sanders. It would be all the news talked about, right? What were they doing? It's behind closed door meeting. What's going on? The president would be wanting to know, hey, what's going on? Because he's this guy over here. What's happening? It would be all they talked about. That's what this was like. It was deeply political. It was deeply religious and important. The second thing about the feast that is really, really interesting is you would start a feast and the Lord of the feast, the person that had called the feast, would actually give them praise. He would start this feast by just absolutely lavishing them with praise and with kind words and celebrating who they were. So Jesus invites them out and starts the feast with added praise on them in front of the religious people to celebrate them. This is a big deal. This is a deeply, deeply, deeply important thing. You have to understand, I've had people send me letters because of what weddings our family has chosen to celebrate. Because you shouldn't be at that wedding if those people are celebrating you. And I'm not saying it's about me. I'm just saying, I know this is shocking, but this still exists. In its own way, this still exists. So the second thing that we have to understand is this is, and this is where it gets really interesting politically. So what you find is that at this time, Jesus invites these sinners and tax collectors. And while this is happening, this was happening during the Roman occupation of Israel. If you were here Thursday night, we talked about some of these occupations and how big of a deal it was. So what's happening is the religious leaders of that day, and I know this is going to be shocking. I know you can't imagine anything ever happening like this. But the religious people of that day determined that the Romans were there because God was judging them. So further, here's what you have to do. As soon as you determine that there's something that's happening because God's punishing you, you have to then determine whose fault it is that you're being punished. So I know this is absolutely crazy to think that this would ever happen in our country. But what they believed was that the sinners, the tax collectors and the sinners were not practicing purity law. And because they were not practicing purity law, they were the reason the Romans were there in God's punishment. And I know this would never happen. I know it's totally contrary to how we live our life or think. 
to where we would ever say that the reason God would destroy New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina is because of gays. Or I know that we would never hear anything about the fact that it's because California is full of liberals that it's on fire. And I know you would never hear anything about the fact that um, all of these things that are the outs of our society is what's causing these things to happen where it's God's punishment. Because it can't be God's punishment for the good stuff. We know that we're the ends. We're the good. We're, we're with Jesus. So it has to be those people. And the Romans were there in the religious leader's mind because of those people. And the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors made up about three, four, maybe five percent of Israel. Very small group of people. And what they didn't do is they didn't practice purity law. Purity law was the most important thing to a, um, a, a religious person, a religious Jew in Israel. Purity law was that you made sure that at no point in time ever did you become unclean. They actually took this so far that they put these like hot tubs in their house called mikvahs. And what it was is essentially it was a pool or a small bathing tank that they would three times a day bathe themselves in. Highly religious Jew that he is, so they would make sure they were clean at all times. In fact, they would throughout the town, they would have these pots that had holy water in them. And if they thought they had brushed up against somebody who was a sinner or a tax collector, they would rush to the pot to wash their hands so they made sure they were clean. It was the most important thing. If you weren't clean, you couldn't go to the temple to worship. Going to the temple to worship was the ultimate social status order. I know churches have used that a long time. And they couldn't go to the temple to worship if they were unclean. So staying clean was deeply important. And what they would do is there's actually stories where if they sat in a chair on or on a bench in a park in public and they thought that maybe an unclean person, a beggar, a poor person, had sat on that bench previously, they determined that they were then unclean and had to rush home and bathe themselves. And before you think that they're just crazy, how many times a day were you taught to make sure you repented for your sins? All the time. Over and over and over. I mean, there were times that by breakfast I had repented like 16 times. I hadn't even had eggs yet, and I'm like, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm going to hell. I know it. Please forgive me. That's what they did with their purity pots. So they actually took this very seriously because they felt like this 5% of people were the outs. They were not supposed to be there. So Jesus does the ultimate holy act with the ultimate unholy people. He parties with the unclean. And further, he takes this a step further because these people weren't just unclean like they're going to hell. These people were unclean and they were all of the anger and the vitriol and the hatred of the Jewish people was poured out upon these sinners and these tax collectors because it was their fault that the Romans were murdering their children in the streets. And he had to repent. And Jesus starts the feast 
He goes at least, invites him, and then starts the feast with lavishing praise on these people. Can you imagine how offended the religious people had to be? Can you imagine the level of offense that had to be there? So we have first Luke 14, Jesus goes to a religious party. That religious party doesn't have any unclean people. Jesus lets them have it for it and then says, I'll show you what it should be like. He decides to throw his own party. So then at this party, he starts with this. And interestingly enough, what we find they begin to do is that they begin to grumble. Here's just businessman logic. If you are partying with people and religious people grumble, it probably means you're doing it right. When you're caring for people who you're not supposed to engage with and Christians grumble, this really interesting thing, and I'm going to show you about this after church maybe, um, because he starts telling them these stories. So he immediately goes into these three stories. So the first story that we have is Jesus begins to tell the story of the lost sheep. Everybody knows this story, so I'm going to paraphrase it. Jesus tells this story, and he looks at the uh, the Pharisees and, and because they're grumbling. He knows they're grumbling. He knows that they're ticked off. I mean, he's doing this on purpose to prove a point about what the party is supposed to be like. And so they're grumbling, they're ticked off. Jesus says, here's one for you. Let's say you're a shepherd, and you've got one sheep that runs off from the flock. Don't you leave the 99 and go after the one until you find it, and then having found it, you throw it over your shoulders and carry it back to your village and throw a feast with everybody because you have found it. Everybody knows that story, right? Well, here's the interesting thing about this that we don't often understand. There's, as we've learned, especially recently, there's deep, deep, deep implications culturally that we need to recognize. The first thing to understand is the Jewish Pharisees thought that shepherds were unclean. The Jewish Jewish Pharisees didn't believe they would never have been a shepherd because being a shepherd was an unclean job. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees as if they're already not offended enough by the fact that he's just got done telling all of these, and I'll just, um, I'll just use some of today's, uh, okay, some of today's people. Um, so Jesus just got done telling the LGBT people and the Muslims um, and, and maybe the, the Buddhists and the atheists and the people who just left Ozfest, um, the Goths, that are all at his party, he just got done praising them about how much God loved them and how much they remind him of God the Father. And as if the Pharisees aren't ticked enough, he looks at them and says, okay, so let's say you're a shepherd. (laughs) I mean, he takes it and pushes it further. He's like, okay, I got one for you. Let's say you're unclean and going to hell. Like, that's Jesus. And so he tells this story. The second thing to understand is in that day, in that time and village, you would have, no one person would ever been able to own a hundred sheep. It just wouldn't have happened. That's not how they did it. What would happen to have a hundred sheep is you would have thrown your 
your locking, if you will, with other families. So you would have had three or four or five families put all of their small herds together to come up with this tiny sheep. So the people that were the shepherds would have been hired to shepherd this flock. They would not have been somebody who they didn't own the sheep. They just would have been what in the scripture are called hirelings. And so they would have been hired out to do this. So Jesus says, okay, when you're caring for, because it's your responsibility, which one of you wouldn't go get the one? And notice what he does. Two things that you have to understand that Jesus says. Number one is that he doesn't tell us because what would have happened is there would have been a group of shepherds. One shepherd would have went to go find the one. The other shepherds would have said, no, 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 back. Right? Back to the village. He doesn't tell us if the 99 make it back. Now, maybe that's important, maybe that's not, but I think it's interesting. What he tells us is just that he gets the one, and after this arduous journey of finding the one sheep, the shepherd throws the sheep over its shoulders and then carries it home. And I love the fact that the sheep has done nothing to deserve being found. The sheep didn't use GPS and get relocated. The sheep did not somehow find the shepherd. The shepherd, in fact, it goes further. It says, and he searches until he finds it. So when is God going to stop searching for us? Until he finds it. And then, not only does God do all the work of the finding, carries it back home. He carries it home. So then Jesus tells another story. This story is the story of the woman with ten silver coins. Now, if you remember in this story, the woman has ten silver coins, which a single silver coin would have been a, a day's wage. Okay? So it's a big deal. So a, a, uh, uh, a single silver coin would have been a day's wage. Um, at that time, the other thing that's really funny about these stories, we don't understand this because we don't know the culture, but they would have never had currency in their home. At the time, it wouldn't. It it would have been like uh, somebody saying, "Hey, you've got fifty million under your mattress." We would immediately, when somebody says that, to start a story, we'd be like, "Wait, what? You can't just go on with the story. What are you talking about? Fifty million under your mattress." It would have been like that. Like, there's an element to these stories that Jesus is saying, saying are supposed to be shocking to the people who are hearing them. And so Jesus says this. They would have never had currency in their home because it was a primary bartering society, okay? You want milk? I want wine. Right? You want vegetables? I need cheese. That's just how they did things. So they would have never had money in their home. But it says in this story that the woman has ten silver coins. She uses one, and it says, doesn't she? Okay, I, I need to stop because I forgot. Remember how Jesus started with offending them with who loves me? Then he went on with, hey, let's say you're an unclean shepherd who you don't even allow into your fold. Then he says, say you're a woman. about who you 
notice what he says is he's comparing them. He's saying, if you were like this and you wouldn't ask your father. So now he pushes the offense further. So he starts with, let's throw a party and rub it in your faces that all the people that are supposed to be out are here. And let me lavish them with praise in front of you. And then let me say that you're a shepherd, which means you're unclean and you're a working person of the land, not the elite that's never had a blister. Now you're a woman. And now you've done the most shameful, offensive thing you can possibly do. And your family is shamed by you. And personal honor was the most important thing in the house. So he says in this story uh, that the father, it's this phenomenal thing where the son decides and starts rehearsing this special speech. This special speech says, Father, I've ashamed you. I, I have brought shame to our household. If you will take me back, I no longer deserve to be your son. And now I can just be your servant, right? And I love this because he's rehearsing this. Um, and, and this is just a side note. I wasn't going to say it, but Ryan told me I needed to. Uh, that how many times do we rehearse in our mind our shame? How many times in our life does something bad happen to us? And the first thing we begin to do is say, well, that's just the way it goes for me because I can't get anything right. I can't do anything right. I'm, I, I always mess things up. And anytime things start to go right, I'm going to find a way to mess it up. And it's my fault. And I'm just an idiot. And nothing's ever going to go right for me because there's something wrong with me. And these people, you know, they, they, they're just going to continue. Things are going to go well for them, but not me. That's what he did. Somehow, just like us, there's a tape in our mind of our of our shame and somebody has mashed the play button and it's on repeat. So he comes back to the father and in shame says, I'll just be your servant. And what the father does is he doesn't even let the son get out the shame speech. He runs off of the house uh, off of the porch throws the robe and ring on him and is shouting and jumping and leaping for joy that the son is back home. And while the son is trying to say, but father, I should just be your servant. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. The father's like, I, what are you talking about? My son's home. He ignores it entirely. He doesn't even hear the speech the whole way home. Maybe hundreds of miles, more than likely the son would have been went to the capitalist. That's kind of Vegas for that area because you're going to go blow some money. What happens when the decapolis stays in the decapolis? Um, and so he would have had to walk hundreds of miles to get back. Can you imagine the whole way back over and over? I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'll just be your servant. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'll just be your servant. He sees his father. I'm no longer worthy to. And the father interrupts him and throws the robe and ring on him. And the thing that we really need to see that would have been so shocking to them is you would have never, ever, 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 ever seen a patriarch of a area, of a, 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 a man of the house, run. It was a dignity in society. You would have never run. You would have never danced. You would have never sung. And you would have made them come to you grovelingly. This father runs to the son and begins to leap and dance in shame at the fact that his son There's, once again, nothing 
nothing, nothing, nothing more important in that culture than feasting. And the biggest feast that you could possibly have is that of Passover where they sat around a bunch of people. So what did he stop the door from doing? interesting because that story ends with the second son, the elder son, the one who stayed there. What does the elder son say to the father? Father, I've been here the whole time. I've been getting all of the crumbs. And yet you never threw me a party. And yet he says to the elder son who don't you know that I've been with you the whole time and everything that you have told me is true. Now, much like the nine lost sheep, the nine coins, it never tells us what happened with the older brother. At the end of the story, he's sitting on the opposite side of the road at a party. There's a party going on. He's at God's wedding. Now, in those three stories, what do you think he was trying to point out to the Pharisees? Who do you think the Pharisees would have been? In these stories, the 99 would have been the Pharisees. They stayed in the flock the whole time. They did everything right. They played by all the rules. They did all the right stuff. And the second story, the nine coins, they didn't go get lost. They stayed right where they were supposed to be. The third story, the elder son, he did everything right. He stayed there. He served. He did what he was supposed to do. He honored his father. All the rules were followed. And yet you don't know what happens because, interestingly enough, there is a party in all three stories. The shepherd carries the one sheep home, and what does he do? He invites the whole village for a feast. The woman finds a coin and invites all of her neighbors over to feast and celebrate with her because she's found the one coin that was lost. And finally, the father throws the feast and kills the fattened calf for the brother to come home. You see, the way this works is that in all of these stories, God is trying to say that this measure of, of, of failing, of being outside, of doing wrong, never disqualified them for goodness. But if that's true, then us playing by the rules doesn't qualify us for goodness. You're not defined by your lostness or your foundness. You're defined by his love. And so part of the thing we have to understand is that the father looks at both the sons, especially in the last parable, and says to them in the same way that the badness didn't qualify, disqualify the prodigal for getting the inheritance and coming home and still getting the ring and the rose, your goodness by playing the, uh, by the rules doesn't qualify you. It's not about that. He actually looks at him and says, do you expect me to be able to measure the infinite? What's the infinite? Love. How can I measure the infinite? So all of these stories, there is a common theme. These stories are driven by the common theme of grace, joy, feasting, and celebrating about things being found and coming home. But for the Pharisees, the team who Jesus is dining with, they have been present at the party the whole time. Think about how this is working. You're at the party. And they grumble. They're at the party. 
yet the whole time they're grumbling. So that's why he goes through these three stories and says, no, 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 look at this. This is you. This is you. And he's ultimately saying, it's your decision if you want to party. It's your decision if you want to feast, if you want to celebrate, if you want to rejoice, if you want to embrace grace. It's your decision. And he's not saying this to the sinners. He's saying this to the Christians. I've met a lot of people who by virtue of not being husbands, who know how to party, know how to embrace the goodness and the joy So the subtle truth to the entire thing, the epiphany of it, is that Christ says, it's right here and right now. Your entire life, the breath you're breathing right now, the, the, the sun that's shining outside, the green grass, it's all a party. That's the epiphany. Christ, all in all. The whole thing is a party, but it's up to you. So Jesus says this really interesting thing. You see, the truth is that so often we're busy worrying about who's at the party and if the right people are at the party to where the seating arrangement is. Half of us would show up to the party with Jesus and, and try to put out place cards and rearrange chairs and make sure that the salt is there. You know the one story that Jesus gives uh, that, that blows me away more than any? It's the one where God throws the party. He says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This reminds me of it. And he says, in it, God throws the party, serves everybody. God sits on an apron and serves. And then once everybody's served, he sits with the crown. How many of us show up to the party and we have served? Because we think that our qualification for being at the party is our ability to do says, I just want you to be at the party. Not do. Just be. Just be at the party. Because the whole thing is God in this kingdom is calling us to feast. And so we think that are they worshiping correctly? Have they said the right prayer? Are they part of the right church? Are they this? Are they that? Are, have, they, have they prayed the magic go to heaven prayer? Have they done the whole repeat after me thing? Jesus says, no, no, no. The kingdom is the insistence that it is at work everywhere, always, and for all, rather than in some places, at some times, and for some people. This is the integral message of Jesus. And you want to know what the message, the gospel really was? The gospel really was this. The kingdom of God is in all, always, all the time. Everybody. You want to read this the way Paul read it? As soon as you're born, you're in. You know what you had to do to get in the kingdom? Be born. Now, you can choose to get out. You can choose to be at the party and not party. You can choose to not be part of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is a feast. So if you want to stand beside the table and get picked off because of who's at the table, you can do that, but the whole thing is a party. And so we spend so much time doing it together. You see, the truth is we worry. So maybe being present at the party and not being at the party is what hell is like. 
the party, but not being at the party is what hell is like. So we have this image in our mind of what this saving kingdom thing, Jesus, Savior, Lord, whatever is like. And most of our images are of battles and lifeboats. So in the, the battle, we're, we're fighting and Jesus comes and, and saves us and we're, we're trying to, to fight so that we can have it. And so we're, we're, we're fighting. There's, oh, there's all these people coming and fighting. There's, there's a culture war happening. And so there's this battle that you have to fight so that you can have this Christian lifestyle. And then we have sometimes this rescue boat kind of idea of Jesus. So it's this other thing, not where you're fighting for Jesus to come, but where, because that's what we think, right? We have, do you realize how much anxiety as a pastor I've had thinking I had to fight for God to do what he wanted to do in my life? I would rather just throw a party. And there's a second one where we have lifeboats, the rescue boats, the idea that there's a flood, there's a there's an apocalypse of sorts, and Jesus is the lifeboat. Everything around us is going to burn. And so if you want to get in the lifeboat, you can, but if not, I tell you what, it's going to get rough. You think Katrina was bad. And what Jesus says is the kingdom of God is not a battle, and the kingdom of God is not a lifeboat. The kingdom of God is a party. And so maybe the lost and the foundness are irrelevant because, interestingly enough, what the father said to the son, what the woman said to the coin, and what the shepherd said, said to the sheep is, you never stopped being my sheep, my coin, my son, when you were lost. See, he never says to them, you weren't my son while you were lost, but now you are. What he just says is, you just weren't home. choose to be lost. I mean, that's possible. We can choose to be separate, separate from God. We can choose to not be at the party. But what he actually says to us that's deep, deep, deep within us is this idea that our lostness or our foundness never determine our belongingness. Did the coin ever stop belonging to the woman? Did the lostness change the belonging? Have you been told that if you don't get them, if you don't get your family saved right now, their blood is on you? You hear nice things like that? And then we're talking, asked these really fun questions in church, like if you're on your way home out of the parking lot today and you die. What? That's the most ludicrous, ridiculous thing. Find me a time when Jesus talks like that. Ever. You want to know why? Because there is none. You're, you belong. And if for some reason at the end of your life you choose to be lost still, how long does the shepherd look for the sheep who is lost? Until he uses. The mercy of God is how long? Everlasting. And his loving kindness endures how long? Forever. So maybe being at the party but not being at the party is the idea of hell. 
we've had it a little bit wrong. And I was just kind of suggesting to you, do we, does everybody here believe that we have the obligation to welcome what's good in the heaven, right? Is that true with us? Maybe in the same way that we get to welcome heaven when we have the party, we welcome hell when we're not having the party. Imagine a real party where everyone you love is there. You start to taste the food. You sit at the wine. You sit at the music. You sit where you want. And you're there. And they're rejoicing. And they're celebrating. And they're loving one another. And they're singing and they're dancing. And you're standing in the corner angry and sad. Both of them are best defined as the love of God refused. But I certainly believe that one of those kinds of hell is here and now. Anytime I talk like this, people say, so you don't believe in a literal hell? No, I do. I don't believe you believe in a literal hell. A literal hell means here, now. I think everybody, I think amazingly, every time I've said, somebody's asked me, you don't believe in a literal hell? No, I do. They don't believe in a literal hell. They believe in a spiritual hell that happens after you die. I'm saying I literally believe that there are two kinds of hell, and one of them is right now when you choose to not embrace the love that he has. And if you don't believe me, let's just see what Jesus had to say about it. For woe to you religious people. Hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves, and when you others go in, you try to stop them from being, what's the kingdom of heaven? Party. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross the sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus said that. You see, our religion today, most clo- we are the group of people that most closely represent the same way the Pharisees were. You see, the Pharisees, their primary two things were purity and converts. The two most important things to the Pharisees in Jesus' day was how pure you were how many rules you followed, and how many people you could convert to doing your rules. Does that sound like anyone you know? Jesus said you cross land and sea to make a single convert, and yet you make them a convert of hell. You want to know what Jesus said the worst thing was about the Pharisees were? They're reproducing. They're multiplying. That's what he said. Here's the worst problem. And not only do they, typically what he says is when you do this, they keep on doing it. That's it. So I would like to suggest to you that hell is, uh, hell is that idea 
that we're at the party. It's happening in the room all around us, and yet somehow we're not actually at the party. Hell that is more worried about who else is at the table uh, than taking a seat at the table ourselves. Hell that resists the feast where people are singing and dancing and enjoying one another and laughing and loving and being loved. And if you don't believe me about this kind of hell, Jesus just flat out celebrates it. wrongdoing. Maybe our hell is where we feel like the wrongdoers and we let Jesus in. He refused to move on from that place. Maybe our hell is that someone else gets all the breaks. Maybe our hell is that we made a huge mistake and a mess of it and can never ever forgive ourselves. Maybe our hell is that we've been waiting on somebody else to forgive us and that may Never happen. Those are stories that you can continue to tell yourself, much like the sons in the prodigal story. Each had a story they were telling themselves. Or we can choose to listen to another story, the story that love has been telling you the whole time, the story that you have found. You see, heaven and hell is much more of a choice than you would like to admit. And maybe all that it requires for us to change our experience is to realize that we are all at the party and all that's left to do is celebrate your foundness. Because love opens the wine with whomever it wants. Love opens the wine with whomever it wants. And grace eats dinner with whomever it wants. Grace loves to celebrate the absurdity of dancing in disappointments, laughing in the face of pain, and giving past where it hurts, because grace has found keeping score to be boring. Jesus doesn't come to tell you that you are good enough, because being good enough has never been the point. I have to say that again. Jesus has never, ever, 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 ever been interested in telling you you're good enough because that would only further the thought that you have to be good. Sometimes we're waiting on God to tell us something that he's never going to tell us because that's just going to speak further into the same problem that we have with the system of whether we get to be found. He's not interested in that. He's telling you that you're found. He's telling you you belong. So he's not going to sit there and tell you you're good. I'm, I, you've done this thing. Uh, you've got the points now. I'm, I, you've done this thing to make me proud. That's not how it works. And why would he play into that system? Maybe what he's been saying the whole time is you're just found. So for many of us who are waiting to be told we are good, grace is standing there saying you've been playing the wrong game. Jesus came, and his first word in public ministry is repent. But interestingly enough, that word is teshuva. So in the, we, we translate it repent, okay? But the word is not, has nothing to do with sin. It actually is a word that just simply means this, come home. So 
Jesus' first words in public ministry is not, you've done wrong, you need to be sorry. Jesus' first word is, your faith must be a work of repentance. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has always been the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life for all. He's always been the way, the truth, and the life for all. And if you have an issue with who Jesus has been, you should probably just get over your issue with him. Because you're already at the heart. You've been here the whole time. You're free. And now we're dangerous because we know how hard it is. Chose to come. He said to the place, he joined you at the table. Make yourself guilty. So let's party. Let's live like we're aware. Let's do something that actually invites people to want to be part of this. So as we take communion, um, I would like to take it as mine. I would like to take it, and I would like to, as we do this, recognize and to do this too okay um as we take it i'd like to do so recognizing i grew up in this valley that certain people qualified for this and certain people didn't right we did that whole like pause moment of silence weird thing where you had to repent because if you didn't if you can't partake communion god will kill you is the most important thing you do. We're going to start doing communion in some weird ways. Because you do realize that it's the only thing that Jesus told the church to always do. When we get together, he didn't say pray, he didn't say read the scriptures, he didn't say worship, and I love all that stuff you guys know. But when we pray, or when we come together, he says,
forgiven, we recognize it is constant, it is consistent, it is daily. And we ask you that you would help us to recognize how much this models the kingdom. We come, the, the table is the kingdom. We come before it and we eat and we drink and we feast and we enjoy who you are. And the table is just it is it's a side of bread and it is a necessary piece of absolutely everyone else's prayer with their meal. And we ask you, God, to help us, help us take this with us, help us as we go out that everybody we encounter who's thirsty and hungry, that we would be broken bread and poured out like that. Father, help us to be those that never stop thirsting for you. Help us to be those that never stop crying out for you to come, for for your kingdom to come, for heaven to be here. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's come and get to everybody can come. So one of the things we're going to do is we're going to start taking communion. We're just going to ask people, as you take communion with us, who's sick? Who needs prayer? Who doesn't have enough money to pay their bills this week? And we're going to meet those needs with faith. Why? Because it's broken bread and poured out like that. That's the point. That's why we do it. Because it's communion. It's the way we all come together as one community to worship our God. So, Father, we bless this bread, even the bread that Eli's getting ready to get. And, uh, and we ask you, I wonder if he knew exactly which piece he had picked when he went back there. Because I had already said bless him, so he's that good. Uh, Father, bless this bread. We thank you for it. We ask you that as Jesus was broken, as he represented this for us, that you would help us to be broken people for other people. Father, help us to be those that we break ourselves and we we literally give ourselves to people to be nourished and to be life that we would give back to one another and that we would embrace people, that we would pour out to be poured into. We thank you for this nourishment that you are in Jesus' name.
the vitality and the enlivening of the presence of you that represents not only that we embrace what you put in front of us just outside of the people, but we thank you also that it, it represents the joy that right when we need it, there's that one in sight. And we ask you, Father, to help us to always find the sight wherever we are. If we're at work and things are just really, really crappy, help us to find the sight. Father, if we're driving down the road and somebody's acting crazy and we're frustrated, help us to find the sight. Wherever we go, help there to always be a cup. Help us to be aware that the table's there. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been so life-giving and so good and so restorative, and I'm so proud of all of you. I know that this is a new thing for all of us, and we're going to get it right. I'm sorry for the ways that I've not gotten it right, and I ask you to help me to get it right. <laughs> we want to do it well. We want to honor him well. And, uh, and so and for those of you who are out of clothes, you can start wearing black again tomorrow if you like. Um, uh, he's, worn, he's worn the same pair, only pair of blue jeans that he had for the last 12 days, uh, and so uh, we, we feast, we rejoice, we, we thank God for what he's done, and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Oh, also, uh, you, can, you can tithe again, I forgot to mention that, so if you remember, <laughs> if you remember from Thanksgiving to January 1st, we gave our tithes away to other people, um, to whoever needed them, so you're allowed to tithe again, uh, you can owe a little bit of trouble. Um, and so you can do that, and uh, and also this um, Thursday, I will not be here, um, but I think Josh is going to be speaking, and there'll be a time for questions, and the following Thursday, we're going to start our midrash discussion, so please remember, if you have questions, it's kind of that marriage point where it's speak now or forever hold your peace, uh, please make sure to submit those, and, and we'll try to address those as best we can. Love you. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.